with asking your mate down the pub about vaping, here's what they'd probably say. No one agrees if it's safer or not, so you might as well smoke anyway. Now what your mate needs is a Cochrane review, all the facts have been checked at least twice. They'd find there's a lot that the experts agree on and might give you different advice. Hi, I'm Nicola Linson. And I'm Jamie Hartman Boyce. We're both researchers based at the University of Oxford, where we work with the Cochrane Tobacco Addiction Group. Welcome to this edition of Let's Talk E-Cigarettes. This podcast is a companion to a research project being carried out at the University of Oxford, where every month we search the e-cigarette research literature to find new studies. We then use these studies to update our Cochrane Systematic Review of e-cigarettes for smoking cessation. This is called a living systematic review. In each episode, we start by going through the studies we have found that month and then go into more detail about a particular study or topic related to e-cigarettes. Happy 2023, everyone. I hope the new year is off to a good start. As always, we ran our searches the beginning of this month. So in January, we found one new ongoing study, which Nicola, will you tell us about it in a nutshell? So yes, Jamie, we found one new ongoing study, which is based in China. It's unclear who it is funded by, but the study is a randomised controlled trial where people are going to be randomised to either counselling plus an e-cigarette or counselling alone. The study investigators are aiming to recruit around 300 participants and are hoping to finish the study sometime this year. Fab, look forward to seeing that. And in this month's deep dive... I had the pleasure of speaking to Professor Jonathan Folds at Penn State University in the U.S. about a randomized controlled trial that his team did. The main results of it for our review came out over the course of the summer, but we hadn't had a chance to talk to him yet. And this is a really big study. It's in 520 current adult smokers. It's a four-arm study, a randomized controlled trial, and he will tell you more about it. So could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to study in e-cigarettes? Okay, my name is Jonathan Folds. I'm a professor of public health sciences at Penn State College of Medicine. I've been here for about 12 years. I used to work at what's now Rutgers School of Public Health in New Jersey on smoking cessation. And before that, I was in the UK. I worked at University of Surrey for three years and before that St George's Hospital Medical School and before that I got into smoking at the Institute of Psychiatry in London with Mike Russell and Martin Jarvis and Anne McNeil. So I've been doing tobacco research for maybe 30 years or something. Went to the Institute of Psychiatry in 1989. Uh, my PhD was in the role of nicotine yeah. in smoking and smoking cessation and Robert West was also a co-supervisor as well. So it was partly on NRT, partly on the psychological effects of nicotine and I helped on some of the trials that were done then like like an assistant when Gay Sutherland did our trial of the nicotine nasal spray and then I did the first trial of nicotine patches in the UK so it was all about NRT and then when I went to St George's I was part of a trial with Robert West and uh, Peter Hayek comparing the patch to gum the nasal spray and the inhaler 
And then the thing that got me into the kind of harm reduction side, like replacing cigarettes with less harmful products, was when I got invited to give a talk at a World Health Organization meeting, and okay. I think it was in Helsinki, and I was asked to talk about smokeless tobacco, okay. which I didn't really know that much about. I'd written a little bit about snus, so I prepared a presentation, and I basically just said what seemed to be obvious, that obviously smokeless tobacco like snus is much less harmful than smoking, because it doesn't cause respiratory mm-hmm. disease it doesn't go into your lungs it doesn't cause lung cancer therefore the meeting was in Scandinavia and so there's a lot of people from Sweden there and they became very very upset at what I was saying so at that point I realised wow I thought this seemed like common sense but clearly it's not kind of a widely accepted concept Mm. so I better kind of do a little bit of research and that resulted in me writing a kind of review that was published in Tobacco Control on the role of snus in improving public health in Sweden that wasn't the exact title but that was the gist of it and that was also very controversial in fact a bunch of very eminent people insisted on writing a rebuttal to the review at the time and so forth so again I was still still kind of taken aback by the whole idea that something that seems obvious on its face that inhaling 7,000 chemicals and switching to just putting a bit of smokeless tobacco that's been made in a way that it's not carcinogenic so you don't have oral cancer the idea that this could be a bad thing to get people off of something that's much more harmful into something that's much less harmful but people not accepting that I was a bit taken aback by it so I was a little bit into the debate about harm reduction but it was kind of an academic debate really because Sweden was really the only country that was having an effect on their own public health by this becoming a popular product. Another thing that got me involved in harm reduction was I was asked to be an expert witness in some legal cases about lung cancer and I remember being deposed by the lawyers and so there's a lawyer interviewing me and it's all been recorded and Uh and a video and there's a stenographer and they were there was six lawyers and Five of them were just on their Blackberries. That's what people used at the time. And they weren't paying attention. They were just earning their $500 an hour by being there. And then, and I remember that I was asked the question, well, there's no such thing as a safe tobacco product, is there, Dr. Folds? And I'm supposed to say no. And their legal argument and their defence was that if they can't be made any safer then the company has no choice but to either go out of business or just keep selling it. And I said, well, there are much safer tobacco products For example, there's a product called Snus in Sweden that doesn't cause lung cancer. And so if your company, which is a tobacco company, and in actual fact, your company started as a smokeless tobacco company and then morphed into a cigarette company, if you had decided to not sell a product that causes lung cancer and had gone and sold another tobacco product that doesn't cause lung cancer, then the person who's got lung cancer in this case would have used that instead. And and at that point, I noticed that the other five lawyers put their blackberries down and started paying attention. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. Mm. Maybe, Maybe I'm onto something here. But the reality was that snus has never really had much traction in the United States. Of course, it's banned in most of Europe, partly because the public health authorities, including the Surgeon General in the United States, basically said that it was just as bad as smoking. So once again, I got more interested in it because I thought people who are you know, respected authorities are saying things that are, in my opinion, just wrong and yeah. factually inaccurate and actual fact possibly harmful to public yeah. health. But and that, I think that's part of the reason that snus never really had much of a chance in the United States. Why would smokers switch to another tobacco product? If public health is telling them that tobacco products just as bad for you as cigarettes, yeah, uh, you know, and people say, "Ah, yeah. see, it's only Sweden where it works." Yeah. Well, 
if you tell them it's just as bad, then why would they? There's no logical reason to smoke yeah. if you like your cigarettes. And of course, then e-cigs came along. And at first, I didn't really take much interest. I remember the first time I, I saw one was at the yeah. World Conference on Tobacco and Health in, in Washington, D.C., about 2007, I think. Uh, and I remember I, I saw yeah. them. Somebody had a booth there. And it, they were, it looked like a big cigar, and he puffed on it. And I didn't kind of buy one straight away, but I ordered one yeah. shortly after, and I puffed on it a little bit myself. And I know that I'm sensitive to nicotine because of in some of our studies at the Institute of Psychiatry, we sampled what, some of yeah. the products. And one of my studies involved giving subcutaneous injections. And so we practiced on me. <laughs> at the high dose we were planning to use, I, I got sick and vomited. So we know that was too high. So I took a few puffs on the e-cig, and it didn't really affect me. And I thought... This is just like a theatre prop. It really doesn't deliver nicotine. Yeah. It looks, you know, you can you can substitute the behaviour, but it's not really a practical thing that's going to help people quit. But then, as you know, these products have developed. Yeah. And then years later, I was here at Penn State and FDA had the ability to regulate tobacco products. At that particular time, they, they hadn't deemed it to regulate e-cigarettes. Yeah. And so we applied for our own FDA-funded centre and I collaborated with Tom Eisenberg's group at Virginia Commonwealth University and part of their centre at that time we proposed to do a two-centre trial of e-cigarettes. And the trial that we did was not a smoking cessation trial. It was a trial, really the way it was worded in the proposal was to develop methods to evaluate tobacco products particularly novel tobacco products and their harmfulness, particularly when used by smokers who weren't necessarily trying to quit. That seemed to be the way that many people who are trying e-cigs or snooze products or any of these novel products that were coming on the market, they would see them on the store and maybe see them advertised and they would kind of try them for a bit, maybe without being seriously trying to quit. And there was another reason that we couldn't propose to do a a cessation trial, which was that the funding for these research centres came from the FDA center for tobacco products mm. now if you if you're proposing to evaluate it as something to help you quit smoking that's a therapeutic indication and there's another part of fda that regulates therapeutic claims the center for drug evaluation and research and so technically the group that had the money for the tobacco research the center for tobacco products yeah. couldn't fund anything that had a therapeutic component to yeah. it so although when we proposed the design of our trial we, I at least, had yeah. a hope that if we included in our trial an e-cigarette with a good yeah. nicotine delivery, something approaching a cigarette, I had a hope that some of the people in the trial who initially didn't want to quit might kind of think, yeah. you know what, I'm using this to reduce and it's actually not that hard and it seems to be less harmful and stinky than my cigarettes, I'm going to keep going and quit. So I had a a hope that that may happen, but the trial was not designed for that purpose. The primary outcome was NNAL, you know, the carcinogen biomarker in Mm. urine. And the people we recruited had to be people who did not have a plan to quit in the next six months. But they had to be people who are interested in using a product to help them reduce their smoking. That was the inclusion criteria. Yeah. So we we did that study and we, you know, it was 520 people and the design of it was that they were randomised with 130 to each group. Mm. 
to either use a high nicotine delivery e-cigarette, 36 milligrams per mil, or a low to medium, which was 8 milligrams per mil, or a placebo, or a cigarette substitute, which was like a plastic tube that had a bit of a cigarette feel mm. to it, and you could adjust the, the draw resistance. And so we gave all of these groups the same instructions to use the product instead of a cigarette, try and replace. And they were encouraged to reduce their smoking by half in the first couple of mm. weeks, and then the next couple of weeks to reduce it by another. 25% so like from 20 down to 5 after a month and then they were instructed to try and maintain it at that level okay. or keep going we never told them to quit you know so reduce as much as you can yeah and then they were followed up at periodically over over six months so that was the design of the trial and the main outcome was I mean we measured CO every appointment yeah. and we had them recording all the cigarettes they smoked throughout the trial and so we knew in our mind that when you have CO and you have cigarette recording you've got a definition of did anybody quit in the protocol that was listed with a kind of as an exploratory variable you know we, we had the ability but it was more explicitly the number of cigarettes yeah. per day that we were going to measure and that was one of the outcomes in the primary paper but once the primary paper which was published on the primary outcomes and most of the secondary outcomes then we set about writing up the paper about yeah. well, did it have any effect on quitting absolutely and tell us what what did you find i kind of know but for the listeners what did you find on quitting you know yes so what we found was i've got it right in front of me so i better uh, try and remember so one of the things that was different in this trial was that with a smoking cessation trial, you get people to have a quit day at the beginning and then, you know, a lot quit on the quit day and then it's downhill from yeah. there. Well, in this trial, didn't quit at the beginning, partly because they were told not to. They were told to cut down by yeah. half. But over time, the quit rate in the high nicotine group increased. It wasn't a very high quit rate. It's not like, you know, half the participants just went, Woo- woohoo, I'm going to use e-cigs just instead. No. But by the end of the trial, it was 11% in the, the high nicotine group. Yeah. It was about 4% in the, the low nicotine group. I think it was 3% in the cigarette substitute, and it was like 1% or less, 0.8% in the placebo. So there was a bit of a dose-response effect. Yeah. You know, a, a little bit surprising that the lower nicotine e-cig didn't have a, a bigger effect to me because, you know, as you know, people can titrate how much nicotine they get. Mm. And, you know, one of the best aspects of this trial, I think, compared to lots of the the randomized trials of e-cigarettes was that Tom Eisenberg's group had done good studies yeah. of the PK of each of these doses with the device that we were using in the trial. So we knew that the high nicotine, and he's done these studies not just in, he'd done them in both experienced users and novice users. Of course, we now know in a number of studies that when people first are given an e-cigarette and they've never used one and you put them into a lab to do a PK study, they get less nicotine. Mm. Even though you might say, we want you to take 10 puffs in five minutes, you know, standardized puffing, they get less yeah. Whereas if you've got a, an ex, a more experienced e-cigarette user and you get them to come in and do that, they get about double. Absolutely. So we got a dose-response effect and in the kind of planned analysis where we compared the quit rate at six months at the end of the randomized phase of the trial between the different doses, then the, the high dose was significantly higher than the placebo or the cigarette substitute. And we put a figure in the paper that kind of showed that the high dose, they were all increasing because people are encouraged to, to reduce their smoking. You know, people think, 
oh, I think I'll quit and things happen in their life. So there was not much improvement on the placebo group, but the eight milligrams per mil group was gradually going up, but very slowly and not significantly better. And the high dose group, the line was going up. And, you know, if you think about it, if that had continued, you know, for another couple of years, maybe more people would have quit. Now, maybe like you, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan of randomized control trials <laughs> as a way to discover if something works, right? Yeah. For the obvious reason that we're all familiar with. So you take a, a large group of people who are kind of similar and you randomize them to different treatments and you know that you're comparing like with like them. Yeah. So I think that this kind of trial was able to show definitively that an e-cigarette that can deliver nicotine almost as well as a cigarette clearly helps people to quit, yeah. even if they weren't planning to quit. That was the main conclusion. Not a magic bullet, because 11% isn't a high proportion, and certainly not a quick magic bullet. So in the first couple of months, very few people quit in any of the groups. I don't see that as a, a big problem, because these were people who weren't even planning to quit. Yeah. And they, they were told to reduce. That's what yeah. they're trying to do. So I don't think there's any big shock that it didn't have a magic effect. Absolutely. But, you know, one of the ways that our results changed my views were that, you know, before this trial and looking at these results, if I was to talk to doctors or do a training and they had somebody who had started using an e-cig but was still smoking, I would have said, well, I, I think you should say to the person, that they need to choose a quit day and need to transfer completely. And if they can't do that, then, then it's a waste of time. They need to try something else, like a, an evidence-based medicine, like verniclin or something like that. But now I'm not so sure that that's the right advice because what we see with e-cigarettes, it's a little bit different with most of the medications where yeah. you, you do pick up a quit day and you, you switch and it either works or it doesn't over the next month or so. With e-cigarettes, for, for quite a lot of smokers, and we hear this from other kinds of studies, they gradually learn that the e-cig can deliver and they learn how to use it. And over time, they reduce their smoking. Yeah. And then at a certain point in time, they, they just switch completely. And that's quite a common pattern. And I think we should be encouraging smokers to do that rather than to give up the yeah. e-cig and keep smoking. Absolutely. And what research do you think should follow on from your study? So we are actually doing a trial just now. It's a short-term trial. It's not as long as this one because the money wouldn't support kind of a long-term trial. But it is a trial that randomizes smokers to switch completely. And it's a placebo-controlled study with just two groups. Mm. It's kind of designed like a cessation trial, but it, the funding's from the same source. And so it's actually the main outcome is NNL again. Mm. But you know, it's a placebo-controlled switching study. And these are people who want to switch, who, who want to quit. So I think it's important that we, we do more of these trials yeah. to clinch the fact that e-cigs when evaluated a bit like a med they work at least as well as a med yeah. and so I think that's important I personally you know much of my research just now is actually on reduced nicotine cigarettes because FDA has proposed that they're going to ban high nicotine cigarettes and make it a requirement for all the cigarettes in the United States that they have 95% yeah. less nicotine in them a bit like has, has now been put into law in Absolutely. New Zealand so I see part of the role for e-cigarettes in the future that will be a key role is in providing a place for people yeah. who are in a country that has implemented that legislation mm -hmm. to switch to a safer nicotine product. And in fact, probably even more importantly, I think it's, it's the case that such a law that will basically make it illegal to sell high nicotine cigarettes promises to have the biggest effect on public health of almost any policy 
in our field that's ever been enacted. Yeah. And so it's, to me, it's really important that it works. Now, one of the ways that it might not work is if there's suddenly a big demand and a big supply of illegal, high, you know, smuggled cigarettes. Yeah. Now, one of the ways to reduce the demand for those and people who, who are addicted to cigarettes and suddenly they can't get any nicotine is to make sure they have a, an acceptable supply of non-smoked nicotine. Yeah. And e-cigarettes are, the, are obviously the, their first choice. We know that from the market and yeah. the, the way e-cigarettes have been sold. So I think it's really important that in the United States we have good quality e-cigarettes that have been you know authorised by FDA. Yeah. But more than one, just now we've got like a couple and that's not going to be enough. And and I think it's really important that we have the evidence to enable FDA to authorise more e-cigarettes. And as you know, that's a very controversial topic and people have different perspectives on it. Absolutely. But I think that's, I have another trial ongoing, which is kind of crossing people who are randomised to normal nicotine cigarettes or very low nicotine cigarettes with those same people being given either high nicotine e-cigs or placebo e-cigs yeah. to kind of see the effect. Well, it, I think it's a great study. Uh, unfortunately, both of these trials that I'm talking about got funded before COVID. Of course, yeah. And then there were difficulties with the products because you know that there's all this kind of fuss about authorization of products in America. And then when you combine those two factors, the trials got massively delayed. Yeah. And then in the meantime, you know, in 2019, we had this Evali scare in the United Absolutely. States. Absolutely. And so the public became quite frightened of e-cigarettes as being dangerous. Yeah. And so now, now we're coming out of the peaks of, of COVID and we're able to actually get on with our trial. We're finding it much harder to recruit. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Whereas this trial that I was talking about went gangbusters. We recruited, you know, 300 people here at Penn State. It's much harder. And I've heard, you know, lots of colleagues doing other kind of, technically this is kind of non-therapeutic research because you're telling participants that, you know, we want to find out what happens, but we can't guarantee that this will improve your health. Yeah, we can't tell you. And so what it says in the consent form, and I think people in America, smokers have become very wary of e-cigarettes. Understandably, yeah. They're concerned about that they're harmful and they'll kill them and they're just as bad as cigarettes. So we're continuing, we're trying to recruit as many as we can, but it's it's tough going. Yeah. Oh, well, good luck with that. And thank you you. so much. This has been awesome. And it's going to give us lots to talk about on the podcast. So thank you so much. Thank you. So it was really interesting to hear the stuff that Jonathan had to say about Snus and his work in that area, because probably since he wrote that report, a lot more work has been done showing the beneficial effects that Snus have had in Scandinavian countries. But obviously what we're seeing now here, because Snus itself isn't legal and readily available, what has been coming on the market are these nicotine pouches that don't contain any tobacco and just the nicotine. And obviously there's very little evidence about that now, but I'd be really interested in looking more carefully at those in the future. That's right, Nicola. And I think, you know, they're not massively taking off just yet, but we definitely, I think, are seeing use increase of those in the UK and the US as well. And I think there are a lot of question marks over it. And another thing I thought was great about what Jonathan talked about was this point about how e-cigarettes, it's potentially worth looking at them in a different way to how we do usually with pharmacotherapies for smoking cessation. And it's really nice to hear how somebody, you know, maybe starts out with one belief about something, you know, he was saying previously he would have just encouraged people to switch immediately, you know, from all their smoking to an e-cigarette. 
but he was saying his opinions kind of changed through looking at the e-cigarette research and being involved in it and seeing that with e-cigarettes, maybe it does need to be that bit more of a gradual process because people are learning how to use their e-cigarette and maybe how to get the best out of them, how to use them in a way that they get the amount of nicotine they need. And as I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, some of my work has been in looking at helping people to gradually quit smoking. So for me, that was kind of a really interesting point that maybe I should look at a little bit further. Absolutely. And I think we've talked about this a bit before on the podcast, but it's interesting to watch the research field evolve, right? From originally kind of testing whether or not these work to help people quit smoking. Now we're at the point where we have evidence that shows their work and it's about how do we provide them and provide guidance on them in a way that makes them the most useful. And I think we can't just assume that it's the same as pharmacotherapies. It might be different. And I hope we'll see more work coming out on that in the coming years. So that's it from us this month. Thank you all so much for listening and to Professor Folds for the interview. We are going to take a little break for the next couple of months, but we hope to be back with you later this spring. Please do like and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use so you know when our next episode is coming. Thanks so much. Please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and stay tuned for our next episode. But remember to mention the findings we have Can't tell us what'll happen long term Even though we know vaping is safer than smoking We may still find cause for concern If you're thinking of switching to vaping That's what the experts agree Smoking's so bad for you, they all concur The vaping beast burning, there's much to learn Of effects on term yet to be Thank you to Jonathan Livingston Banks for running searches, to Elsa Butler for producing this podcast, and to all of you for tuning in. Music is written with Johnny Berliner and I, and performed by Johnny. Our Living Systematic Review is supported by funding from Cancer Research UK. The Cochrane Tobacco Addiction Group also receives core infrastructure funding from the National Institutes for Health Research. The views expressed in this podcast are those of Nicola and I, and do not represent those of the funders.